There's a story told of um, a man years and years ago. I don't know whether it's um, anecdotal or true. In Canada, who decided that he was going to see Niagara Falls. And he'd never seen Niagara Falls before. He was a farmer that lived um, hundreds of miles away from the position of Niagara Falls, just on the border up a bit from New York in, uh, in, um, and Canada and the USA. So he made his way by foot because he was a poor man. And for days and days and days he traveled. And after a long time, he could feel that he was getting, he thought, I must be getting close now. And he heard this noise. This quiet thundering noise in the background. And he, he thought, is that Niagara Falls? Could that be Niagara Falls? And uh, he noticed that as he was walking along the road, he was close to a farm. And there was a man on the farm, the, the barn roof, fixing it. And he stopped and he said to the man on the barn roof, could you come down? And the man on the barn roof said, of course I could, but obviously not like somebody from Northern Ireland. <laughs> he came down and he said, can you hear that noise? And the fellow said, what noise? He said, that quiet rumbling noise in the background. Can you hear that? He said, oh, that's always there. And he said um, to him, he said to the farmer, is that Niagara Falls? And the farmer said, well, I'm told it is, but I don't know because I've never been. Imagine living so close to something, but never seeing it. Being so close to something as magnificent and as beautiful and as powerful as Niagara Falls, but being so comfortable where you are that you never ventured beyond your own context in order to see it. I want to talk to you tonight about posturing yourself for growth, about positioning yourself so that when you hear the rumble of God's thunder, you'll follow until you see it and encounter it. The people of God have always, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, and since that period, we are called to be a people who are willing to do whatever God asks us to do in order to see his glory. All the way through the Bible, there is the story, particularly in the Old Testament, of a group of people who were willing to do that. They made many mistakes. They got it wrong again and again and again. They asked for a king when they didn't need one. They were ruled by people who were unfair and unjust when they had been set free from um, the Egyptians, they went into the wilderness led by a man called Moses. And Moses went up a mountain called Sinai in order to receive instructions from God about how the community was to function. And whilst he was away, the people that were left at the bottom of the mountain said, we don't like where we are now. This Moses has brought us out into the wilderness and we're going to die here. Why don't we construct a, an, an idol, a golden calf that we can worship, something that we can see and touch because we're tired of having to pursue the invisible. We're tired of having to go further to keep pursuing what God is asking us to do. We all feel like that sometimes. 
I've been a Christian 31 years now. And in, that, uh, in those three plus decades, there are times when it gets tiring and you think, I don't have the energy to pursue again. I don't have the energy to start again. I don't have the energy to go those extra few miles off the barn roof to encounter the power of God that might be around the corner. But you know what? Don't allow your lack of energy tonight to stop you making that journey. I want to encourage you from the youngest to the oldest to pursue what God has for you and to posture yourself for growth. One of the most powerful stories about a man that did that is the story of Abraham. If you want to open your Bible for a moment in Genesis chapter 12, you'll read of his remarkable story. Genesis chapter 12. If you've got a notepad, you can write in it. If you've got your phone on, take notes in that. Take it down. Do you put your stuff online here? You can listen to it online afterwards and allow God to speak into your heart again and again. And you know, I'm looking at some of you young guys particularly. How many of you are waiting on A-level results? Or GCSEs? Whether they're good or they're bad, God has a purpose for your life. You can't. There's no point praying now, Lord, change the results. <laughs> We've all, well, many of us have tried that. <laughs> Lord, I've done the paper, but could you please change the results? Um, because I think they're not going to be as good as I thought. You can't do anything about it. But God has your future in his hands. Yeah. He's not going to drop you. Whether you get good results or worse results than you expected, God's purposes for your life are unchanged. He can use you. Hold on to that and allow yourself to posture yourself for growth. Abraham was at the other end of the spectrum. He was an older man. Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and the ones who curse you I will curse. And in all the families of the earth, you shall, and, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took his wife Sarai and his brother's son Lot and all the possessions that they had gathered and the persons whom they had acquired in Haran, and they set forth to go to the land of Canaan. When they had come to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he moved on to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and invoked the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on by stages toward the Negev. God always blesses the public reading of his inspired and infallible word. Abram and Sarai are interesting characters because they embarked on a journey that they didn't know uh, the destination of. When they started out, they didn't know where they were going. What they heard God saying at the beginning of Genesis 12, God said to Abram, follow me. Leave the land of your fathers and follow me. Didn't tell him where he was to go. And Abram and Sarai said yes. And they embarked on a journey into the unknown. 
One famous writer has said this, if you want to catch a glimpse of a different horizon, you have to be willing to lose sight of the shore that you're standing on at the moment. We have to be ready to do something that we've never done before. And the the Bible is littered, absolutely littered with examples of people who were willing to follow where God told them to go, even with fear and trepidation. Abram and Sarai are two of those people. Moses is another one. You'll hear his story in Exodus chapter 3. He's made huge mistakes. 40 years prior to where you pick up the story in Exodus chapter 3, he's killed a man. In, um, in Egypt, he saw a Hebrew slave being attacked by an Egyptian soldier, and he killed the Egyptian soldier, and then he fled when he was found out. And he spent 40 years in the desert looking after sheep, running away from all that God might have for him. And one day in the desert, he looks and he sees a bush that is burning. That's not unusual. It was an ordinary, everyday occurrence in that part of the world. The the weather was dry, arid, and hot. Bushes caught fire all the time. But as he looked at this bush, it wasn't being consumed. And his attention was drawn into it. And as he drew, as, as his attention was drawn into the burning bush, he ended up entering into a conversation because he heard the voice of God. We're told in Exodus chapter three, if you read the story carefully, that when God saw uh, Moses looking at the bush, he spoke to him. When God saw that Moses had noticed something, he enters into a dialogue with him and he calls to him out of the bush and Moses comes toward him and God says to him, take the shoes off your feet for you're standing on holy ground. And then he says, I have heard the cry of my people. I have seen their suffering. I have noticed their affliction and I have come down to deliver them. Imagine hearing that. If you were a Hebrew and you knew the oppression and the weight that had been placed upon your people for hundreds of years and you hear God saying, I have seen, I have heard and I have come down to deliver them. Your initial response would be, Yes! And then he says, and I'm going to use you to do it. And at that point, Moses goes into a flurry of panic. There are five different things that he says. He says, you you must have got the wrong man. This is the Northern Ireland version. You must have got the wrong man because I am not able to do this. If I go, who will I say sent me? And God says, tell them the great I am sent me. And then he says, But what if they don't believe that you sent me? What then do I say? And he says, well, put your hand in your cloak, Abraham, and pull it out. And he showed him that he had the power to do whatever Abraham had in his hand. He said, give me what's in your hands. And then he says, "Um, but, but, but what if they reject that? What if they reject me? I can't speak. I'm not a very eloquent person. And God says back to him, who made the person able to speak or not able to speak, able to see or not able to see? And then he says, and how will will I know that you've gone with me? And he answers again. And then in the end, Abraham gets to the crux of the matter and he says, why don't you send my brother Aaron instead? Please don't send me. The problem with many of us, those of you that are Christians, and those of you that are not, is we want to see a better world. We want to see a better society. We want to see 
injustices conquered. We want to see wrongs righted. We want to see our communities living in peace. We want to see young people getting a chance. We want to see families different. We want to see marriages strengthened. We want to see folk that have been brought up their whole lives believing that they're worth nothing, know that they're worth something. But we want somebody else to make the journey to make it happen. We love the idea of God moving in our communities. We love the idea of God moving in our, in, in our nations or in our world. So long as what he does is he calls somebody else to do that. So when he says, I, I want to do that, but I want to do it through you. What do we say back? Somebody somewhere, brothers and sisters, has to take a step of faith. Somebody somewhere has to take a risk. Imagine for a moment Abram leaving his community, Sarah leaving her community and stepping into the unknown, having to go to a place that they'd never known before, encounter people that they'd never known before. And yet God used it. Moses eventually said yes. God drew him into the most remarkable journey. There's another story told in the Old Testament of a man called Samuel, a young boy. His mother, Hannah, in 1 Samuel chapter 1, 2, and 3, his mother had been desperate to have a child and had never born one. And she was in the temple one day and uh, she was uh, praying fervently. And the old priest that was there, a man called Eli, saw her and thought she was drunk and told her off. He said, I'm not drunk, I'm praying. I'm asking God to hear my cry. And Eli said, may God hear your cry. And Hannah had said this to God, if you give me a son, I'll give him back to you. Imagine that. All your life longing for a child. And we're told in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and 2 that as soon as Samuel was weaned, Hannah brought him back. And he grew up from that moment in the Lord's temple. That's a remarkable thing, don't you think? To be able to give someone like that to God. I'm not sure I could do that. To give over your whole future to God. This thing that embodies your deepest dreams, your deepest longings, your deepest aspirations. For some of you young guys at the minute... That might be your GCSE results. Might be your A-level results. It might be your university place or your apprenticeship. It might be a relationship that you're in that you know isn't right. And being able to say to God, I will give you this because I want to follow wherever you're going to take me. I think it is amazing. Rebecca, are you the youth leader? Just one of them. Well, I wish I had you as a youth leader because you are amazing. Just the passion and energy that you're talking with. But you know what? And I don't mean this to spook you guys. I don't mean it to kind of make you think, ooh. But what you did last week and tonight is a really serious thing. To stand and say everything for Jesus, God will take you to your word. And he might take you all over the world. He might take you into spaces and places that you never thought possible. You know, um, look around this room for a minute, you guys. You, you that are under my age, which is 20, <laughs> 47. No, those guys that are in 412. 
Um, take a look around the room. They've all looked at you. Now look, no, have a look. They don't bite. Take a look at all these folk. They're amazing, aren't they? A lot of gray heads. A lot of folk that are in the second half of their lives. And I don't mean that disrespectfully because I'm in the second half of mine too. But should Jesus Christ tarry, then in 50 or 60 years, you, if you're still part of this church, will be taking their place. And you guys that are in the second half of your life, need to invest all you've got, all your passion, all your energy, all your ideas, all your creativity into those that are in the first half of their life. And believe that God might have them go further than we have. Believe that the next chapter, the next bit of the journey of the church of Jesus Christ in Dundonald might be better than the first chapter has been. That God has more to do. But to do that, you and I have got to be willing to make a journey. We've got to be willing to listen to God, to take some risks, and to step out in faith. Let me give you just three things that can undergird that for you, whatever age you are tonight. When you come to believe in Jesus Christ, you become part of a new people. And as a new person, you have a new purpose. And that new purpose means that with it comes a new power. And if you can hold those three things together, whether you're 16, 17, or as old as, I don't know, Phil Hill's 115, (laughs) then you will be able to go further than you ever thought possible. You're a new people. One of the things I love about the stories of the Old Testament and the New, but particularly about the story of Abram and Sarai, is that after they come into this pursuing relationship with God, excuse me, I need to cough. That's not what Abraham said, by the way. It's been off all the time I've been speaking. Oh, I don't know. (laughs) Abram and Sarai. One of the things I love about the story of Abram and Sarai is this. Um, Often in the the Bible, when people come into a relationship with God, they're given a new name or they, they assume a new identity. So in the New Testament, for example, you have Simon who becomes Peter because Peter means you are a rock upon which I will build my church. Or Saul becomes Paul because it's the the Hellenized form of his Hebrew name. Saul becomes Paul. Abram and Sarai become Abraham and Sarah. It's one of those interesting things, however, that there's no change inherently in the meaning of the name from the change from Abram to Abraham and Sarai to Sarah, unlike Jacob, whose name becomes Israel. Jacob means liar, deceiver, cheater, and twister, for those of you that are thinking about calling your son Jacob. (laughs) Or any Jacobs in the room? Are you afraid to acknowledge it? Don't worry, in Greek it means friend. (laughs) So you can just hold on to the Greek meaning. The Greek meaning means friend. 
So often the meaning changes, but with Abraham and Sarah, it doesn't. Here's what changes, and I'm going to do a little bit of theology with you, so sit back and enjoy it, even pretend to, even if you're not enjoying it. Um, Abram can be said without making a sound. Abram. Sarai can be said without making a sound. It's called an aspirated consonant. Are you impressed by that? But Abraham and Sarah has to have an aspirated consonant in it. The Hebrew name for God um, is pronounced, is spelt in English, if you were transliterating it, W-H. And in Hebrew, there are no vowels. There's a pointing system that helps you to pronounce the, the, the word properly, so they have to guess it. And they're, they're quite good at it. But there's no way of knowing how to pronounce the divine name. Some people think it's Yahweh. Some people think it's Yehei. Some people think it's Yuhu or Yacha. But most Hebrew scholars, Hebrew linguists, now believe this, that that word, that name, can only be pronounced Because every time you breathe, you are speaking out the name of God. Every human being, this makes for great fun, by the way. Next time you're talking to an ardent atheist who tells you that God isn't existing and he's not there, listen. Because underneath his or her breath, every time they're speaking, they're declaring God is, God is, God is. Do we start living when we cry? Or do we start living when we first breathe out, God is? (sighs) And do we die when we stop breathing? Or do we die when we can no longer declare God is. (sighs) Here's the reality. You can't say Abraham without using that sound. And you can't say Sarah without deliberately using the which is the name of God. Abram and Sarai become Abraham and Sarah. Once not known, not knowing God, now knowing God. Once not in relationship with him, now in relationship with him. Once um, living their lives according to their agenda, now living their lives according to God's agenda. And it's an idea that you see again and again and again in the Bible. There's a story told in Hosea, a prophet um, whose name is the Old uh, Testament version of Jesus, by the way. And he is told by God to marry a woman. And that woman has an affair, uh, has a couple of children. And the children are called not loved and not wanted. She goes off and she has relationships and Hosea divorces her, then remarries her and God renames the children. You can tell this, find the story in Hosea chapter 2, particularly verses 24 to 26. The apostle Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 9, verse 27, when he's talking about Israel. God gives them a new name. He takes a group of people that were not known and he makes them known. He takes a group of people who were not loved and he makes them loved. He takes a group of people who felt isolated and makes them feel included. That's what he's done with us. 
When the Apostle Peter was trying to explain to the church in Rome what had happened to them, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 10 to 12, he says, here's what God has done for you. He's taken you who were not loved and made you loved. You are now a new person when you come to faith in Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Paul wants them to understand it. So he says this, if anybody is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. In Greek, it's even more succinct. There are far less words. Here's what it sounds like. If you are, if in Christ, new life. <laughs> That's a theological expression. It means praise the Lord. <laughs> you are a new person. Most of the challenges I face as a pastor, helping people to make their way in Christian faith, are rooted in the fact that they're living out of an old identity. A father that didn't love them, a mother that didn't want them, a family that was broken, a teacher that put too much pressure on them, a church that was too legalistic, a friend that pushed them, a, a, a lifestyle choice that they were adopted into because they used a few words. They find themselves in a wrong identity. But when you become a follower of Jesus Christ on this journey of faith called trusting in Him, you're given a new identity. We are a new people. We have a completely new persona. God has placed something in me as a follower of Jesus, which you can never take away. I have a new identity. I am a new creation in Christ. The old is gone and the new has come and God will finish what he's begun. That is not only true of me as an individual and you as an individual. You're not just a, you're not just a church goer. Who needs more church goers? Is Northern Ireland going to be changed by more nice people? More people going to church is not going to face, change the face of Northern Ireland. More people encountering the power of God in conversion will. Where I live in Buckinghamshire, you know, <laughs> where we have supper instead of dinner, and a latte costs about 9 50 <laughs> um, we have awfully nice people. They are wonderful. I love them. I love our community. It's a wonderful, wonderful place to be part of. But we need to avoid falling into the trap of thinking that what we need to be is nice. Jesus didn't just come to ask you or me to make a difference, although that is what we're called to do. He, called him, he asked us to make disciples. Yeah. You can make a difference without Jesus, but you can't make disciples without him. You can transform a society without Jesus, but you can't transfigure a society without him. God doesn't want you just to make the world a better place to live in. Do you know why? Because this world is not the end of the story. You can spend your whole life making East Belfast the most popular place to live in the whole of the United Kingdom. And when people die, if they haven't met Jesus and responded to him, they will still go to a lost eternity. Yeah. This is not just about social or political or cultural change. This is about capturing a vision which is so big that it will take every single bit of you. And that we will embark on a journey which doesn't end when we die, 
but we will understand that we are a new people with a new um, sense of identity. Don't serve God in order to get him to love you. Nothing you can do will ever make him love you anymore. And nothing you will do will ever make him love you any less. And you'll never disillusion him. He never had any illusions about you in the first place. Let him love you. Let the love of the cross pour down into your heart tonight. Allow yourself to experience what it means to be a new creation in Christ. And if you're already born again, let the joy of your salvation bubble up in you again. Let the the assurance of God's power and purpose at work in you bubble up. Let that consume your disappointments. We are a new people and we have a new purpose. Our purpose is to grow God's kingdom and to do the works of him who sent us just as the one that saved us did the works of his father. When Jesus walked into the, um, te- the synagogue at Nazareth, recorded in Luke chapter 4, verse 16, he picked up a parchment from the wall that was wrapped in a deep, heavy, rich cloth. Its um, handles would have been made of either very polished wood or brass. And he carried it to the middle of the room and he put it on the reading stand and unrolled it. And close by, there would have been a pointer made out of ivory or bone or wood or worked metal because he wouldn't touch this parchment. And he picked it up and he pointed at it and he started to read words that shook Israel, shook Nazareth where he was and shake us today. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the recovery of sight to those that are blind and freedom to the oppressed. That's your purpose. That's my purpose. When I become a follower of Jesus, when I'm given a new identity, my purpose is not to fill a building like this with people that enjoy church. My purpose as a follower of Jesus Christ and as a pastor, actually, is to see people discipled so that they can capture whatever God is calling them to do and they can do it for the glory of Him. And that in all that they are and all that they do, they will seek to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, that they will seek to be people who live out the glory and the purpose of Jesus. God's power is able to transform every single home in Dundonald. His power is able to transform every single home in Northern Ireland, every single home on the island of Ireland, every single home in the United Kingdom and on the continent. He can do it. The fields, Jesus said to his disciples in the Gospel of Matthew, are white unto harvest. There isn't an issue with people outside who need to know and experience the love and the power of God. The issue is the absence of workers. Anybody ever watch Stingray? The people here at the front will think it's a fish, don't worry. Those of us that are a little older will remember Stingray or Thunderbirds. At the beginning of Stingray, there used to be this little bit of music played. 
and it showed you the boat coming up out of the water, and it would go something like this, stingray, stingray, and then about a minute and a half into it, here's what um, the, the, the cartoon character would say, anything can happen in the next half hour. When was the last time church felt like that for you? In the early uh, third century, halfway through it, 252 was the year. A plague broke out in the North African city of Carthage. It was so bad that um, they were piling dead bodies outside the walls. The bishop at the time was a man called Cyprian, a great leader of the church. And they were getting so anxious inside the city that they started to put people outside the city that weren't dead but were probably going to die. Cyprian called the church together in Carthage. And he said, God has called us for this hour. I am asking you to fulfill the purposes of God. Will you please leave the city and live amongst the dead and the dying and demonstrate the love of Jesus Christ to them? Will you become parabolami is the word that he used, not pastrami, parabolami. It's a Greek word. It's a word that's used in the New Testament of one man only. His name was Epaphroditus. He's mentioned in Philippians chapter 2 as the man who brought the offering of money from Philippi to Paul when he was in prison, probably in Caesarea or in Ephesus. We're not sure where. And when he got there, um, Paul was under house arrest. And Epaphroditus had to put himself under house arrest too so that he could help his brother Paul. Because he wasn't allowed to be there unless he was willing. He wanted to live with him. He lived with him for two and a half years. He gave up his freedom because Paul needed somebody to stand with him. He got sick and almost died. He didn't want to worry the church. And then he got better. And when Paul sent him back, he sent him back with a letter. And he said, I'm honor people like Epaphroditus. For these are they that have risked their lives. Epaphroditus, by the way, is taken from the name of the goddess Epaphrodite, who was the goddess of gambling, the goddess of risk-taking. Do you see the picture building? This man who had been named by somebody before he became a follower of Jesus as the risk-taker gets converted and becomes a risk-taker for the gospel. And he goes and allows himself to take the biggest risk of all with his life by living with Paul, almost dying, and then coming back. And Paul writes back to the church and says, honor people who take risks. Honor people who are willing to step out on a limb to pursue the purposes of God. And Cyprian, 200 years later, picks up the same story and says to the church in Carthage, will you take risks too? And they did. They left the city. And a movement in church history was born called the Parabolami. They lasted 700 years. And they were men and women who gave up everything in order to fulfill and pursue the purposes of God. The last mention of them is a missionary movement in China in about 1100. When was the last time the church in Northern Ireland was known as the risk-taking community? 
Wouldn't it be amazing if Dundonald Elam became known as that risky church? That church that steps out on a limb to fulfill the purposes of God. And not just the young people, but the 75-year-old Abrahams and Sarahs. The 80-year-old Moseses stepping out and taking a risk. Do you know, the closer you get to um, older age, the more easy it is to say, you know, well, my time's done now, really. I'm praying not for people that will retire, R-E-T-I-R-E, but for people that will be retired, R-E-T-Y-R-E-D. Retrained for the most wonderful opportunities because God is bringing them to us. Mission impossible. Your mission, should you accept it, is to carry the light and the hope and the grace and the mercy and the goodness of God and the message of the gospel and the invitation to a fresh start to every single person in the world. I wonder how many of us are up for that. It might take all you have. It might take your life. This is the point in sermons like this of which a preacher who wants to make it easy says, and you'll do it. Well, it might cost your life. Of the 12 disciples, the apostles that followed Jesus, one abandoned him, Judas, and he committed suicide. Of the 11 that remained, 10 of them were martyred. One died a natural death, having been exiled for years on a small Mediterranean island, John. In 321 AD, there was a great council near a place called Constantinople or Istanbul, as we would call it now. It was called the Council of Nicaea, where they were having a big argument about whether Jesus was God or man. That's the shortened version of the story. Of the almost 300 bishops that attended, 287 had either lost a limb or an eye or sustained permanent injury because they'd stood up for the gospel. Halfway through the uh, second century in Rome, the gladiatorial ring was hot and red with the blood of Christians. And one slave was forced into the arena. His name was Telemachus. And he saw what was happening. He was in the arena, not in the, not in the, sta- he was in the stadium, not in the um, performance area, with his owner. And in those days, when they wanted, um, the emperor would hold his thumb out. And if he held his thumb up, it meant um, that those that were in the arena could live. If he held his thumb down, it meant that they were to be destroyed killed by lions and wild creatures that were led into the arena or burned or something. Telemachus was in this arena on this particular day towards the end of the uh, second century. And there were hundreds of Christians that had been slaughtered. And the next one was brought out and Telemachus had watched and watched and watched and got so angry and frustrated that he was ready to erupt. And the emperor um, stood up with his thumb and put his thumb down for the people that were in the arena to be murdered. Everybody in the Colosseum cheered 
except telematches. And in moments like that, there's a, often a moment of pause as they wait to watch what's going to happen next. And Telemachus stood up on his own in the Roman Colosseum and he shouted, No more! No more! And the people around him started to shout, No more! No more! And it spread around the Colosseum. The emperor and the emperor's guard saw what was happening and they had Telemachus trailed down out of the seats into the stadium where he was slaughtered by an animal. But that was the death knell for the way the gladiatorial ring was used. Something changed in the atmosphere that day that they couldn't get rid of. In the 1700s, a man called uh, William Wilberforce trying to abolish slavery in the United Kingdom. And every time he tried, it didn't work. In uh, about 1782 or 1783, he brought a bill three or four times by that stage to the British government to get them to try and abolish slavery. And every time they failed, and it was Christians that said that shouldn't happen. They felt that if slavery was taken away, then the, the construct, the very fabric of the British Empire would be destroyed. When they lost the first bill, the churches of evangelical churches across Britain rang out their bells in celebration that slavery had been upheld. William Wilberforce went to see his friend, who was the prime minister. He was 23 years of age, and his name was Pitt the Younger. And Wilberforce said to Pitt the Younger, I am going to give this up. I can't do it. And uh, Pitt the Younger said to him, why can't you do it? He said, Wilberforce said, because it's too hard. And Pitt the Younger said, why is it too hard? And uh, William Wilberforce said, because the wind is against me. And Pitt the Younger looked at William Wilberforce and said, then change the wind, William. He started to think about how he might do this. And he decided that instead of trying to get transatlantic slavery, instead of getting slavery um, Banned. If he could get the transatlantic slave trade banned, then that would lead to the collapse of the slave trade. And he knew that one of the worst things that was slaves were being used for at that time was bringing sugar into the United Kingdom and other parts of the world. And he knew that when the ships came into Tilbury Docks or Hull or Liverpool or Bristol, there were hundreds of dead slaves in them that stank. So he arranged for middle-class and upper-class women and members of the aristocracy to arrive on the docks for a tour of the boats just at the point when the windows of the boats were being opened and the stench of death flooded out. And as these women and upper-class aristocrats and wealthy power brokers and policymakers walked past the boats, they smelt the stench of death and said, what is that? And William Wilberforce said, that's the smell of your sugar. And the abolitionist movement began to grow and grow and grow. 32 times he tried to bring his legislation. And 31 times it failed. But on March the 27th, 1807, the transatlantic slave trade bill was enacted. And uh, transporting slaves across the Atlantic was outlawed. Within 30 years, slavery had been demolished. It had been outlawed across the world. An amazing story of one man who gave himself to the purposes of God in order to see change. You could do that. Here's the tragedy. 2017, there are more slaves in the world now than there were then. 
We can't just get a bit of legislation. God doesn't just need legislators. He needs an army of men and women who will give themselves to his purposes. What are you passionate about? Are you passionate about Ballybean? Are you passionate about Larne, about Dundonald, about Newton Ards, about the Beersbridge Road, about the Newton Ards Road? Are you passionate about the Loyalist community? Are you passionate about the Nationalist community? Are you passionate about Republicans? Are you passionate about um, Unionists? Whatever it might be, what are you passionate about? Are you passionate about women? Are you passionate about kids that are getting trafficked? Are you passionate about the equality of Northern Ireland? Are you passionate about the family? Are you passionate about education? Allow God to take your life and inhabit it with his purposes for the glory of God. A new community, a new people, a new purpose, and a new power. You don't do this on your own. I don't do this on my own. God didn't call me into personal relationship with him and then say, now it's over to you for the rest of your life. He's promised his power in you. The presence of the Holy Spirit. I've tried to plant the seed of God's word. Now let the rain of the promised spirit's presence flood into your heart and into your soul. Tarry with me in Jerusalem. Jesus told the disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, until you have received power from on high, then you will be my witnesses. Church work is tiring. Mission is tiring. Serving Jesus is tiring. There are times when the stuffing is knocked out of us and we've lost too many battles and we think that we can't get up again. And in our natural strength, we can't but you don't have to rely on your own strength. The power, the presence, and the promise of the Holy Spirit is here for every one of us to drink deeply of tonight. The grandma that doesn't know how to bring up her grandchildren, the dad that's trying to help his kids, the husband that's trying to look after his wife, the wife that's worried sick about her husband, the deacon, the elder, the pastor, doesn't matter who you are or what you are. If you are in Christ, then the promise of the Holy Spirit is for you to give you strength and energy and passion. And he knows how you feel tonight. He knows how much you need him. He knows how much you yearn to be his hands and feet. So whatever age you are, whether you're going to do performing arts in London, it's not a prophetic word, by the way, he was talking to me earlier. just in case you think I'm that accurate. (laughs) Or you're committed to being a salesman for sports gear and do sound desks occasionally. God's presence and God's power is here. I don't get up every morning and get out of bed thinking, yay, another church meeting today. I get up out of bed every morning and go about my business thinking, I will give my all today to God's kingdom. To being his hands and feet and his voice, to standing up and being a part of the answer and not constantly a part of the problem. I give my life to something better, something higher, something different. At the end of the, at the beginning of the 20th century, the famous um, US president, Teddy Roosevelt said, Credit does not belong to those people that stand or sit in the seats watching a performance. Credit belongs to those 
whose faces are actually dirty and marred with the dust of trying, who in their best moments lived valiantly, and in their worst moments, in their failure, at least they can say they tried. Credit never belongs to those timid, fearful souls who have always been afraid to try. I want to be part of a church that answers the call to see the world transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and is willing to try. I want to be part of a church that releases a generation to try more than we tried. I want to invest my life in people who are willing to go further, reach higher, and run faster than I have. I want to be part of a church that takes Jesus at his word and will pursue him to the ends of the earth and stand until the end of time, until the glory of the knowledge of the Lord covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. What do you want to be part of? Allow yourself to embark on the journey. Posture yourself for growth. Say yes to a new identity. Say yes to a new purpose. And say yes to the promise of new power. Amen. Let's pray together. It's been such a joy and a delight to be with you. As every head is bowed and every eye is closed, thanks for your time and for your attention. Really appreciate it. I want to ask just a couple of simple questions. Is there anybody here this evening and you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ? You've never surrendered your life to him. Somebody brought you to this meeting tonight and you've heard of a Christianity that is about a new purpose. That's not just about church attendance, but it's about your whole life lived for the glory of God. When Jesus Christ died, he died to forgive you, to set you free. He died to break the chains of fear and of sin, to give you a new identity, to give you a new life, new power. And that is available tonight to you if you want it. All you need to do is say, God, I come as I am, sorry for my mistakes, turning away from the mess I've made of my life and surrendering my life to you. The minute you do that, God will hear you and welcome you into his family. He won't even wait a nanosecond. Is there anyone here tonight that wants to begin a relationship with God through Jesus Christ? If there is, just put your hand up where you are, young people, older people, everybody in this room. I want to give you the opportunity to respond. Maybe you've been churchy, but not a Christian. My second question is, is there anyone here this evening and you have lost sight of this stuff? Other things, other issues have gotten the way and tonight you're saying, actually, I'm giving myself to this cause. I'm giving myself to the call of God 
to be an agent of life on planet earth and I'm turning away from all the other stuff that's got in the way and I'm saying to God have all of me again I want you to come and fill me with your spirit empower me with your presence to live for you as a mom, as a dad, as a son as a daughter, as a husband, as a wife as a single person as a divorcee, as a widower, a widower whoever you are if you're saying to God tonight I want to live out my days for you and I want a fresh empowerment of the Spirit's presence then again where you are no one else is looking just put your hand up please thank you thank you don't be nervous thank you 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 take your hands down anyone else So God of life and power, of purpose and presence, imbibe this place with the living reality of your spirit's nearness. Breathe upon your people. Breathe deeply into our hearts. Set our imaginations ablaze with the possibilities of what you can do. Whoever we are, wherever we're from, we give ourselves again to this great task and we will follow you wherever you call us, whatever you ask us to do, thank you for the power of your word. Thank you for the presence of your spirit across this room as we worship you for a few moments. Fill afresh with your Holy Spirit, I pray. For those that have never experienced the baptism of your power, baptize them in your power. Let from our bellies flow rivers of living water. And may we radiate the presence and the glory of Jesus Christ into the world around us. We love you, Lord. And we give our lives to your purpose and to your kingdom. In Jesus' name. Amen.